Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you've found your primary resource for some of the industry's best education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome to episode number five. And if you tuned in to episode number four, you'll know that this is a second in a three-part series. And this one is all about comparing and contrasting structures versus multiples. That's right, it's sell-side advisory broken down into bits and pieces. And I think you're gonna get a lot of detail today because I'm gonna be joined once again on the podcast by my partner, DeWalker Sinha. It's sure to be another note-taking episode, so get your pad and pen ready and probably a little bit of popcorn to go with that awful Keurig coffee. We're off and running. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Once again, thanks to everyone in the audience for joining us on the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. I'm Perrin Desports, and I'm obviously I'm your host, and I'm going to be joined again today in this second of a three-part series by my co-founding partner, uh, DeWalker Sinha. Many of you know him not only from the prior podcast, but from uh, a history of podcasts with me somebody that brings unbelievable insight uh, and a lot of granular detail to the subject matter that we share on the podcast. And it's always a joy to to have him here. Some say he actually keeps his old BlackBerry under his pillow just in case the technology comes back. DeWalker, do you want to say hello to everybody in the audience? Hey, Perrin, thanks for having me back. By the way, it is going to be a museum piece. And just like uh, the Mona Lisa, it's going to be worth something one day. Yeah, I hear that uh, small QWERTY keyboard is super popular amongst the millennial set, right? Yeah. Maybe not, but you know, it's just uh, when you have a partner who comes from the banking world, uh, they don't give up those Blackberries too willingly. So I'm I'm glad that he decided to enter the the 2020s at long last. So today. As I mentioned, uh, is the second of a three-part series. And for those who listened uh, to the prior episode, you might recall that we uh, we uh, notified everyone about the official launch of M&A services at Polaris. We talked a little bit about why we decided to launch those services now and how that kind of came about. In the first episode of this three-part series, was really talking about um, the the fanning of the flames, if you will, that are in this sell side market that we find ourselves in. And a lot of the conversations that we've had with uh, clients or even prospective clients that uh, are considering selling their business or they've been convinced that if they don't sell their business now, the sky is falling and it's all going to be doom and gloom. And the advice that that we tried to give really uh, was summed up in the prior episode, at least, as don't let the tax tail wag the dog. Um, you know, do the right thing for your business, and if that's selling in 2021, do it for the right reasons, um, uh, with eyes wide open and a complete understanding of the the tax impact scenario. And if the d- right decision is to continue to grow and scale your business, continue to operate it for a couple of years, 
do that for all the right reasons, but don't let uh, a change in a potential change and long-term cap gains be the reason that you you sell your most valuable asset. And today, we want to talk about um, a bit more about deal structure specifically, uh, because regardless of whether you sell the business today or in 2022 or 2025 or whenever down the road, it's probably not going to be an all-cash offer. Um, or if it is, it's probably a very low offer altogether. Uh, it's probably going to be a blend of cash, some type of an earnout or a holdback, uh, and an equity roll. Um, and that rollover equity piece can impact um, a lot of the uh, total return on the sale of the business. It can also impact the tax implications of it. So as we start talking about deal structure and specifically multiples. Walker, do you want to give some insight into kind of how you size that up and balance those two, if you will? Uh, sure. Yes, I think uh, kind of uh, segueing from our last podcast, tax structure is important uh, when you're looking at multiples also. You know, uh, in a example, you know, if you're going to market this year would be, you know, you have Farm One that offers you six and a half X multiple. They have an 80-20 allocation, meaning 80% of the purchase price is allocated towards goodwill and 20% is allocated towards hard assets. Um, And firm two gives you a 6x valuation, uh, but they give you 90% towards goodwill and 10% towards um, um, hard hard asset allocation. And let's assume going back from uh, our previous podcast, you didn't have any kind of level of recapture. Your basis basis is what it is. Now, what does that mean to you? Well, you know, the economics could favor a lower valuation just because the deal structure is different on a more of an asset allocation towards goodwill. Um, somebody at 6x versus 6.5x, they're willing to do it as all as goodwill or 95% as goodwill might even be a better deal. So these are things to consider, not that to say that these structures happen all the time. It is something we negotiate or work through with the buy side, depending on the buy side. And this is one aspect of the deal. Uh, which is, you know, again, tax structure, kind of segueing from our last podcast. Um, another aspect to consider that I think, uh, you know, um, we may not talk about and is, you know, I think everyone is potentially looking for the highest X multiple. And I definitely understand that. Where I'm, I'm, a, I'm a banker. I'm a capitalist. I understand the desire to have the most amount of uh, dollars hit my bank account. So I sincerely appreciate that, that logic. But I think something the uh, addition to consider is, you know, what is the historical performance of the company? Are you going to be rolling over some equity? What does that mean to you? Where is the equity going to be sitting? Is that going to be the practice sub DSO? Is there a, a JV sub DSO, more of a regional sub DSO? Is that at the hold call level? These are things to consider. Um, and and I'll use the similar example on like I did on the tax allocation. You know, the the aspect of you know a deal. Uh, you know, let's say deal one, you know, you have a buyer offering you a you know, million dollars in EBITDA. Buyer one offers you a 7x valuation, um, which would be a premium to the space, um, offers you 7x valuation. Um, and they're, hist- you know, and you're going to roll over 30% equity. And their historical performance on, on uh, return on capital on, the, on any rollover equity is 2x. Um, you know, may not perform the same level as somebody that offers you 6x on the same million dollars in EBITDA, still rolling over 30% in equity. And their return on capital on the back end performance 
investment rate of return. These are things you're going to hear in the in, in the in through the buy side process or sell side process. Might be three x. So in many times that six x just because the company's historical performance on return on capital is higher is a better deal for our clients than the seven x. Now some of you may be wondering, okay, so should I take the six x or the seven x? What's Polaris going to recommend to me? Well. And, and more than likely, depending on if you're rolling over equity, in this case, 30% equity, we may recommend to you to go with the 6x valuation over the 7x valuation. Um, and that's probably contradictory to what you may have experienced or have heard in the space. Um, and you know, even though our success fee is based on the enterprise value, we would effectively be lowering our success fee. So why would we do that? Well, uh, you know, parent, I'm 40 years old. You know, I'm looking to build a 20 to 30 year company. And for, you know, for, for, for Polaris, you know, we want to build a company where if we do the right thing by the client, they can look at their back end performance in three to five years and say, this is the best decision I made, best, you know, partner I partnered up with. And you guys, you know, partnered up with the right company, even though the front end valuation was lower, the back end outperformed any expectations I have. And we've talked about the second bat of the apple. And and deal structure to us, the second bite is more important. So um, and you you know unless you know again you're looking at you know uh, um, you know if you have companies that are always offering the highest valuation in the space, you kind of have to wonder how can everybody get the highest valuation in the space and still get the highest return on capital in the back end. Something's got to give. So companies that tend to perform better on the back end valuation are methodical. Are thoughtful about the partners they partner up with, the, uh, what their growth strategy is. They're more diligent, and, and those are the characteristics we look for in that process. Um, and again, the six x versus a seven x may be—I mean, I say maybe—more attractive on a long-term strategy um, to to th- to think about. Well, I, I got to be honest with the audience here that it's great to hear that you want to build a twenty to a thirty-year business, but. I'm 50. And let me tell you one thing for sure. I'm not going to be hosting this podcast when I'm 70. All right. Y'all can all take that to the bank. I, I don't know what 20 years looks like. I do want to build a long-term business, but 70 to 80 years old for me being behind the mic and talking about deal structure probably ain't going to be cutting it. So that being said, it does drive home a, uh, a salient point for the audience. Uh, if you're going to entertain selling your business, it's our opinion that you should uh, use uh, an advisor to do that. Somebody who's well-versed um, in the intricacies of the dental industry and M&A transactions and understands the, the complexity of the transactions candidly, especially if there's a, an equity rollover. But you need to understand with clarity how that advisor gets paid. Most of them, including us, get paid on the total value of the transaction. Uh, that does not have a tail or any type of a compensation on any type of equity role that releases in three to five years. In other words, we get paid on the total value of the transaction today, regardless of how much is in cash, how much is in an earnout, and how much is in an equity role. So, to DeWalker's point, if we and other sell-side advisors get paid on the total value of the transaction, it would stand to reason that the sell-side advisor would be a, an advocate for the, the greatest multiple because it inflates the transaction value. 
But to fall back onto Walker's example, the greatest, the highest multiple may not be the total structure that's in the best interest of the client, depending on what the client's wants and needs are, and depending on the validity of the buyer on an equity role uh, context. That is something you really want to pay attention to. Uh, and I would echo DeWalker's point that we, um, we're we not uh, a firm that looks exclusively at the, the multiple or the transaction value in isolation. Those are businesses that, those are sell-side advisors and businesses that are capitalizing on a, a current phenomenon. Um, hopefully they have a lot of experience and they represent uh, their clients well, but they want to be um, uh, promoting to the marketplace uh, the the EBITDA multiples that they've achieved or the multiples of revenue that they've achieved, the transaction values and all that kind of stuff that uh, looks good on a headlines, um, but it might not actually be in the best interest of the client. And I'd like to think that much the way I said in the prior episode, we tend to take a holistic view, holistic view with clients, which is the first the first question is, uh, is it better to, to sell today or continue to build and operate? And we can help you either way. So hopefully we're an unbiased advocate for what's the best course of action. And then subsequent to that, if you do to, or when you do decide to, to exit, uh, hopefully we would take a holistic view of the transaction offerings in, in and of themselves to figure out which is the best potential performance over the lifespan of the commitment for the client. And, and if we do that, we've done right by the client and hopefully we've matched them up with the, the right buyer that creates the greatest overall economic upside for the client, even if it pays out, uh, plays out over a period of time long after we've gotten paid for it. So I, I think it's, it's worth it to drive that home a little bit at this point, because when you're talking about deal structure versus multiple, um, sometimes people focus on the, the wrong number, honestly, that's not in their best interest. Um, the last thing I would say, just to, to add a, a third point on what DeWalker was saying is the post-sale roles and responsibilities obviously matter. If you're going to roll equity, you're probably going to be staying with the company going forward. So what are you going to be doing with them? Are you in a clinical role? Are you in an administrative role, uh, chief dental officer role, business development? Do they want you to be CEO? Um, so there are a lot of different considerations around uh, your life, pro professional life, after uh, that liquidity event. So yeah, yeah Aaron, sure, I think, uh, you know, uh, that's, you know, well stated because I think, you know, looking at, you know, firm one might be, again, I, I go back to the multiples back to back because I think, you know, the, the market just communicates that way. And, and so I'm just kind of staying somewhat consistent with the market, you know, but it, you know, firm one's giving you six X, let's assume the backend performance is the same and the, all the other, you no know, recapture. And I'm kind of keeping all the other variables uh, uh, consistent. And one role says, I need you to be a dentist for four days a week. And the other role says, you know, I want you to lead and build out the team and do business development. And what's more satisfying to you? And I, so I think uh, understanding your role also has an impact. And I think, again, I'm a capitalist, I understand economics there. But I think you know, personal satisfaction, gratification uh, beyond the wire that hits your account is something to be said for. 
and 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 those things are very important in an equity role. And more importantly, you know that role you take may have a more significant impact in the back end performance of that equity role, especially if you're going to be in a BD position, chief clinical officer position. That organization needs that role. Now you get to be part. You know, might not be in the driver's seat, but you're in the second or third row in the bus getting to see what's happening and help drive the direction of the bus. And that's pretty important, I think. Yeah, well said, well said. Now let's shift gears slightly here because for, for people who are uh, anticipating going to market uh, and potentially selling their business, they're going to go through something uh, usually after uh, the letter of intent is signed um, uh, or from the buyer uh, to the seller. And they're going to go through a process called due diligence. And, and that really takes three different uh, aspects into consideration. One is what you might call operational due diligence. One is clinical due diligence. And, one, and, the, and the third is financial due diligence. Um, operational diligence being what's the, the health uh, overall of the capital equipment and technology. Are there going to be any things that need to be replaced um, or, or any part of the structure of any of the facilities that need to be upgraded. Um, uh, clinical diligence is the biggest chart audit you've probably ever been through. And financial diligence is, is one uh, that substantiates uh, the proof of cash receipts uh, into the bank account that flow all the way back to the transaction and the payment. Um, and one of the things that we're seeing a little bit now kind of... Um, pop up, I would say, uh, post-COVID is something called a sell-side quality of earnings report. Walker, do you want to take uh, this sell-side Q of E concept and kind of slice it and dice it on what it is and, and why it's necessary sometimes? Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, the sell-side Q of E process uh, has been there, you know, pre-COVID. We just see it more on a, on a larger ticket transactions um, than in our space. And I just want to say this: I don't think you have to do a sell-side QB to go to market or you know uh, transact it because the buy side will do it. Uh, we just don't recommend that strategy uh, for everybody. Now, if your trans- uh, business uh, EBITDA is five hundred thousand dollars, you know probably not that we'll let the you know buyer go through that process. But the reason, you know, keep in mind that the QV process that many of our podcast listeners will go through, and that is the opportunity for the buy side to really dissect the business and, and really understand the, the issues, financial and operational issues in the business. And what I always try to tell our clients that are going to market right now is, wouldn't you, wouldn't you rather do the home inspection before going to you know, finding the buyer, uh, understand all the issues in the business, be able to defend those issues on a proactively basis? Or would you rather figure out the QV issues 45 to 60 days before closing? We're here middle of October. And if you don't like the, the outcome from the QV company uh, from the buyer, your, your options are limited at that point, especially again, the world is falling. You know, the tax rate is changing in January 2022. So um, you know, if we're gonna go through that process, then let's let's be ahead of it, right? So, you know, let's look at you know a QV process early. Um and you know, understand the economics there, uh, the, the the EBITDA, the, the proof of cash. Um, those the QV process does cost anywhere from thirty, forty thousand, depending on the transaction size and the business operations, two hundred, three hundred thousand. So it is a significant investment. 
Um, but you know, we have clients that are uh, coming down the funnel that are two to three million dollars in EBITDA. And if you're at two to three million dollars in EBITDA with us, I'm mean, not pretty pretty uh, 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 fairly communicated early in the process that this is our recommendation. The investment for these two businesses that we have anywhere from eighty to hundred thousand dollars in QV. Um, and 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 most of our clients are on board with it. They understand the value of a QV from a sell side's position. Um, and then being able to go to a buyer and say, we've already done the QV process. Now, don't get me wrong, the buyer's going to go through and still dissect some level of the QV. Uh, but it does show to the buyer space that you have a motivated seller. Um, and we are able to have uh, uh, conversations with buyers that are willing to say that, hey, if, if you close the deal with us, we would have paid for the QV anyway. We'll help you reimburse some portion of it or all of it. So it's not a complete. Uh, complete loss in as far as if you if you are truly motivated to sell this year i think the bigger issue that I, I would encourage everyone to think about is you don't want to be sitting on a closing table in october or november with a qv from a buy side um, and the you know the valuation changes by 300 500 million dollars i think if you follow our podcast from before i'd rather work through all the bad news up front you know all the challenges we're going to have make sure we're ahead of those challenges and then be able to proactively address it. This is your life's work. You know, going to the closing table in November, or December, or anytime in the future um, should be an amazing experience. Should be an exciting day. Um, and you know, with the expectations that you receive from your, your from your M and A firm in in now or in the past, or as you're engaging them in the next thirty days, you know, or in the future, um, the variance from the initial expectation of valuation to the closing table should be minimal. And I think that's very important. And the sell side QV process um, it, uh, uh, only helps mitigate that early in the process. So, yeah, I think that mindset going into the the closing scenario of, of you know optimism and abundance versus sort of a defeatist you know mindset and and taking a lesser offer, or capitulation, or surrender, or something like that is is completely different. Um, and, and a sell side QOV usually um, works through some of those uh, shortcomings, if there are any, at least earlier in the process um, along the decision tree analysis. So great, uh, great, great points there. Let's um, wrap up this episode with just maybe some of the, I guess, anecdotal feedback um, from some of the buy side conversations we've had. I, I feel like we've you know, had dinner with a number of them. We've had calls with a lot of them. Um, uh, it's, it's, uh, we spent a, a significant amount of time interacting with, um, private equity groups and, and business development people from enterprise level DSOs recently. And maybe you could just, uh, walk and talk through a summation of some of what we're hearing, uh, from them. Walker. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, this is the conversations we've had, you know, um, you know, this Q2, uh, Q, end of Q1 going to Q2, is that they're very optimistic about the market uh, uh, over the next three to five-year horizon. Uh, so tremendous opportunity. You know, they, they, there's a little bit of concern about, you know, from our previous podcast about supply going into 2022. And, and that probably further uh, guess uh, validates that there might be valuations of probably hold may go up. Uh, there's, there's just going to be more compression, right? Cost of capital may go up next year. From a, a debt position, um, uh, you know, and, and obviously, 
uh, having to put higher uh, multiples out there may or may not happen, but I think there's some level of anxiety around it. Uh, but we're starting to see more and more from a lot of our buy side is that they're looking for partner groups um, you know, that are looking to roll more equity. Traditionally, we saw an 80-20 roll or 90-10 roll. Um, and we may see that more from a late stage doctor that's looking to exit more and, and kind of take more chips off the table. That still is there. Uh, but the, the more of the private equity buyers or strategic buyers we're talking to, you know, they're open to a 60-40 role. And really then dissecting, going into a deal structure, taking that 20% uh, uh, of the you know, you know, so this 40% role, 20% is at a hold call level, which is the DSO level. And the 20% is at the JV level. So that's really attractive from mitigating your risk position and, and maximizing your investment rate of return from a, from, a, from a seller's position because that flexibility and structure allows the ha- that to happen. Uh, we've also seen flexibility, and you've, you've um, we talked about in the previous podcast about tax structures, even earlier in this, is that you're seeing buyers being more flexible as far as uh, allocation, 80-20, 90-10. Um, and even getting more creative beyond that as far as uh, um, looking at performance. Now, we've had clients come to us that have said, hey, when I started a practice in the middle of the pandemic, or I bought an underperforming practice in the middle of the pandemic, I was one of those buyers. Um, and I you know, bought a eight-year facility doing $800,000 run rate in the middle of the pandemic. I got a sweetheart of a deal. I paid $500,000 for it. And in 2020, uh, it's on track to do a million. And in 2020, I'm sorry, 2021 is tracked to do a million. In 2022, it should do one and a half million. And I think the buyers are are looking at that and are willing to structure those deals, performance provisions. That if you were going to do that level of performance on your own, let's structure the deal where you realize that you don't have to uh, wait to to fully realize that valuation before you you know, find a partner. So I think you're seeing buyers get creative, provide credit for de novo locations in a, in a performa model. Of course, performance provisions are going to be there. Um, if you bought a practice in the last six months or two years, you know, um, you know, what does that look like? Again, if you bought, you know, started a practice in the last two years or you bought a practice, kind of goes back to our previous podcast about tax recapture. So we will work through those angles uh, and make sure you understand the economics there. But I do see buyers overall be a lot more flexible. To, to 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 the market as far as you know going into 2021 2022 yeah just to put a bow on that the audience has heard me say on multiple occasions that we are big fans of the de novo model if there is one consideration it's that you occasionally uh, have to give them a little bit longer period to, to fully bake you know as that new business comes out of the ground but it's exciting to see some of the proposed structures and opportunities from the buy side that Take some of that into consideration for for our clients using a de novo process, uh, and and it's kind of cool to think about, you know, what's the best course of action? Continuing to use your own uh, bank debt to to grow that de novo presence, or uh, the bank of a private equity group, so to speak, um, or an enterprise level buyer that that might be able to unlock some of the same full potential. So, um, really uh, compelling times in the space overall, uh, and obviously we're both very uh, bullish about the, the profession of dentistry and healthcare overall, um, as well as this, uh, this overall movement for growth and consolidation. Walker, these uh, sessions have been uh, 
really, really great. I, I appreciate you being on the podcast with me for, for these two. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. You got it. You got it. I didn't really have a choice, truth be told, but in any event. So the third uh, uh, installment of this three-part series uh, will be an upcoming interview with a top 20 CPA firm. We'll give a little bit better um, uh, line of sight into some of these tax considerations and some things you want to pay attention to and to maybe even ask your own tax advisor, uh, as well as a, a view from the lens of what all is happening in Washington. So stay tuned. That episode will be forthcoming. Thanks so much for joining us today. Everybody take care. So that was another full frontal assault from DeWalker in terms of uh, information. And I hope you all got a lot out of uh, today's episode. I know there's a lot of detail in there, so no shame in having to to revisit an episode like that multiple times. Um, if you've obviously got questions about it, feel free to send uh, me an email and I'd be happy to, to follow back up with you. Or if there's anything in today's episode or any other episode that you'd like to discuss in greater detail, be happy to book a call and, uh, and talk it through with you one-to-one with that. You can reach me directly at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. So before we wrap things up, uh, I want to take a minute and answer a question uh, from the audience. This one comes in from a gentleman named Bill in White Plains, New York, and he says, I'm a specialist, and with the consolidation that's happening in the general practice area, should I be concerned about my referral base? Um, and it's a really good question, first and foremost. Uh, and this is one that I probably end up spending um, 20 to 30 minutes with uh, clients when they come to see us for a discovery day in the office and, and they're a specialist or specialty group, we end up talking about this a lot. So I understand uh, it is a concern. It's justifiable. Um, and there are ways to think through it and think about it. So let me give you a little bit of insight into the way we size this up for specialists and specialty groups from a referring practice context. First and foremost, I would advise you to look at your referral reports. You want to understand the volume of patients referred into your practice and where they came from. Uh, specifically, you want to know the practices they came from. And you want to understand all of the referred patients that you took in. Uh, is there something called concentration risk? Concentration risk, when you break it all down, is really when you get um, an extraordinary amount of a revenue source or an income source, or in this case, a patient source, from a, a minimal number of referring sources. So if I had 100 patients, just to use a round number, referred into my specialty practice, and out of those 100 patients, they might have come from 10 different practices. Well, that doesn't mean that there were 10 uh, patients from each practice that came into my specialty practice. It might be that you had two or three of those practices that made up 70 to 80% of the entire referral base. So it's one thing to say that uh, an enterprise level DSO is buying up your referral base. But if those referral bases are only referring one or two patients to you a year, the consequence isn't that significant. On the other hand, 
if Heartland Dental comes in and buys two or three of your primary referral sources and 80% of your referred patient source dries up overnight, that is a huge threat to your business and one that is going to be really, really difficult to overcome. This is another reason that so many specialists and specialty groups are not only looking at their referral source as a way to generate patient flow and ultimately revenue, but they are going direct to consumer with a lot of their specialty procedures. They don't want to be dependent solely upon the referring sources for their revenue generation. And this is a critical piece that you need to understand where you have concentration risk and be able to quantify what that risk is and then obviously market around that to delever your position with it. Great question from Bill. I really appreciate you submitting it. Finally, on the something new, noteworthy, or and cool front, I wanted to share with y'all a, a product that I've been using um, for probably about a year or maybe closer to a year and a half to two years now. And some of you know um, that I'm a, a cyclist uh, as just a, an athletic endeavor and enjoy riding my road bike um, with, uh, with groups and, and ride a, a pretty decent amount. I also play tennis recreationally. Um, and, and enjoy being um, a recreational athlete, I'll say. That being said, I turned 50 um, at the end of the last calendar year, and recovery <laughs> from hard rides and things is becoming more and more of a challenge. Um, about a year and a half or so ago, maybe two years, I discovered something called PowerDot. And you may have heard about this on some of the um, running podcasts or cycling podcasts or, or other um, uh, you know, athletic sites, uh, blogs, or otherwise, PowerDot is a really uh, interesting invention, for lack of a better term. It's it's an app, okay, first and foremost, and the app controls electrodes that you attach to your legs or your arms or your back or something like that. And it it's a it's a portable e-stem unit. And what an e-stem unit is, is the you attach these electrodes to, let's say, your thigh um, with, some, uh, with some patches. And, it, and the electrodes uh, are controlled through the app on your phone, and it sends electronic stimulus to your muscles for massage, for recovery, for warm-up. Um, it's really an amazing invention. It's totally portable um, and, and works absolute wonders. Uh, to, I, I'm, I'm amazed at how well it works, honestly. And for those of us who are either endurance athletes or um, maybe even weightlifters that lift a lot and you have muscle soreness, and the older you get, your, your muscles don't rebound uh, as quickly. Um, and when, you, when that happens, obviously, you, you can't go hard on back-to-back -back days, uh, and it impacts your endurance, your strength, and, and recovery is a really, really big deal about staying in shape. And the little PowerDot device or app um, is, is something that I've found uh, to be a great benefit to me as an athlete. Uh, and it really does help with recovery. Um, and, and I've loved it. I use it um, more times than I'd care to admit probably uh, at this stage of life. But if you're an athlete out there and you're looking for ways of, of recovery to, to enjoy whatever the athletic endeavor is that you do, or you have muscle soreness and, 
and pains and aches. And God knows we all have lower back issues if you have young kids. Um, this thing is uh, really a, a game changer. Uh, I can't say enough about it. Um, so check out power.powerdot uh, is the name of the device. And I um, uh, hope it benefits you uh, the way it has me. So I also hope that you had a lot of fun on today's episode and that you learned a good bit. Um, obviously, we try to share content that is uh, readily applicable and, and to a degree enlightening. If you do, please do leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Um, because we, we enjoy getting good ratings. Obviously, we want to know that we're putting out good content for the audience and, and a nice um, pat on the back is always welcome, uh, like it was from M. Bennett 20, uh, when he said that the Walker and Perrin are powerhouses of knowledges, knowledge and experience, but they are able to lay things out in a clear and concise manner. This podcast is essential for any dentist looking to grow and can offer insight into any healthcare organization. A must listen. Thanks so much, Mark. I really appreciate the, the nice compliment from, from you out there uh, and from the others that we've gotten uh, in email, text, and, and certainly verbally when I've spoken to some of you over the phone uh, about the nice compliments y'all give us on the podcast. We do work hard at it. We'll continue to do so and really appreciate all of you being in the audience.